Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to, this, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through standard and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own afflictions, affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Uh, at the University of Michigan, uh, the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts, uh, they have an article on their website, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's about this thing they call the social identity will. Uh, and the will includes this worksheet, uh, and it encourages students to identify and to reflect uh, on how they identify socially uh, and, and how these identities become more visible or more keenly felt depending on the, the place that they're in or the time that they're in. And so, uh, and so what they'll do, they'll get these folks together and they'll kind of discuss uh, how they identify and how, this, the, the, how the way they identify impacts the way they act around different people. Uh, and, and the will had 11 categories. Uh, it was ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, sex, age, religious or spiritual affiliation, some others. Uh, and and in that, inside that will, they had these five prompts, these things to kind of consider. And it was these. It was like, what identity do you think about most often? What identity do you think about least often? 
uh, how your own identities uh, or, or, or your own identities you would like to know more about, identities that have the strongest impact on how you perceive yourself and the, and the uh, identities that you think have the greatest impact on how others perceive you. And look, it would be an interesting conversation to have. I mean, you get in a circle of people and talk about your identity. I mean, it shapes us more than we, than we realize, you know. Um, and, and we usually don't know it until something happens to us to where it kind of impacts us a little bit. Um, so so for, for me, the way this identity kind of affecting the way I act played out, I noticed early on, so I graduated college, college, went into ministry, and, and I was one of those who went into ministry, and I, I didn't think it was like the, the cool thing to do. I don't think many people do, but anyway, I, I definitely didn't. And so I, I thought people's perception of me was this is, this is Kevin Shoemaker. Uh, he is really passionate about people not cussing, not drinking, not smoking. He's just kind of a good time, good, clean, fun chaperone. This is what he likes to do. And I, I hated that idea of what I thought people would think about me. And so and this is really, it's, it's kind of odd to, to share, but I, I would find myself in those environments and I would think people were thinking I'm real uptight and I would just kind of randomly and casually use bad language. And, and it wasn't like a slip up. It was like me in like ninth grade at the seniors party trying to be cool, you know? And, but it was just this idea to where I thought they thought of me in a certain way. And, and, and so my identity began, was shaped by what I perceived this person to think of me. And that, and that changed or had an impact on, on what I said or did. And look, so there's an idea. This is just kind of what we, what we do. We, we kind of operate out of our identity. And so you've probably done something similar, whether you're aware of it or not, you're in a crowd uh, and there was people that maybe thought of you a certain way and you wanted to change the way they thought of you or you wanted to affirm the way they might think of you. And, and you probably act differently. So if you're in a room of like family and friends, people that love you, you, you probably act one way there. And it's probably real free and easy. And, and you're probably real enjoyable in that, in that environment. And then you're in a, in a room full of strangers and, and you're not, you don't feel comfortable, you don't feel known, you don't know what they think of you and you can't but help but try to manipulate a little bit of what they might perceive you or how they act. And you're thinking, well, you know, you've probably left a place and think, I talk too much or I didn't talk at all. Or you just think about these things and you don't think that way in these other types of environments. So the, the big idea is that our, our identity has an impact on how we act. Uh, and, and that's why the Apostle Paul, he would often, when he would write his letters to these people, uh, his letters can often be broken down into two parts. The first part, he's talking about their identity and who they are in Christ because of what Jesus has done, who they are. And then the second half of the letter, he's telling them things to do. And so, so there's that who you are, and then he lays that foundation, and on that he builds what they should do. And this is, you've probably heard me say this before, but when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the Bible, the indicative precedes the imperative. And what that means, the indicative, who you are, precedes the imperative, what you're supposed to do. And so, so really what we have to do as a church, as people who are following Jesus, is more than being concerned about what we do, we need to be concerned about who we are, how we identify with Christ. And from that, we build on what we do. And if you get those reversed then you're going to get in trouble. The things you're supposed to do are going to be a great burden. You're going to be defined by what you're not doing. And look, people can be in the same church and they can get their identities crossed and, and one can flourish and thrive and one can feel like just, just utterly under this, um, this dark cloud of legalism. And it's just because they reverse. They, they're getting who they are based on what they do rather than the Christian way is we identify with the gospel and then we act out of that.
So anyway, so that's what Paul is, is uh, doing here in this passage that we read. It's kind of sprinkled throughout what, what needs to be done, and it's sprinkled throughout the passage who they are. And so scattered throughout, we see Paul talking about who they are in Christ. And then later on, we see him talking about what they should do. Um, and so today what I want to do is I want to talk about the Christian's identity as it's kind of bubbling up out of this passage and what they're supposed to do. And so their identity, as he's going to go through this, needs to be rooted in the gospel. So my first point talk about our gospel identity. And then secondly, it's what they do out of that, at least in this passage, I want to talk about gospel proclamation. So first, gospel identity, and second, gospel proclamation. So first, gospel identity. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So rather than living for themselves, they should live for Jesus. And, and, and why is that? Why do they live for Jesus instead of themselves? Because the love of Christ controls them. So since Christ died for them, they have died to themselves. So they no longer live for themselves, but they live for Christ. Now, to take a step back and think through these things, it's good for us to ponder what it is we live for. What is it that you live for? In, in this day and time that you're situated now, what is it you live for? You live for your family? You live for school? Is it, is it work? Is it, is it making good grades? Making decent money to support your family? Having people's respect? Having some measure of success? Some kind of relational ideal of, of what it means to be in, in some kind of perfect ideal relationship or just maybe keeping your head above water? And look, these aren't nasty things. And, and some of these things are just things you, you have to do. But, but there's a subtle difference between just things you, you need to do and things you live for. Like, there's a difference between needing to eat, we all need to eat, and then living for food, right? It's a subtle difference, but there's certainly a difference between needing to eat, we all need to eat, and living for food. And so there's things that we need to do in life, but there's a difference between those things we need to do and those things being central that we arrange all of life around. So let's say, as we consider this living for ourselves or living for Christ, let's say you come to the conclusion today that you don't live for Christ, that you actually live for yourself. And maybe it's not one of these nasty things, but it's a respectable thing that's just first and primary in your life that you arrange everything around. You come to the conclusion that you don't live for Christ. And you want to change that. So how do you go about changing that? What should I do this morning to persuade you to live for Christ? Should I make you feel guilty? Would that work? We all know that doesn't work. If I take your, your selfish, try harder? That doesn't work. But what would work? What, what changes a person to live for Christ truly? Not out of guilt, not because they're supposed to or whatever, the expectations around them, but what makes them true? Because if you're going to truly live for Christ, you really want to. And so what makes a person change? How do you change the want to, right? Not by guilt and shame and saying they're selfish. Well, I think the answer is in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. If any of you really do live for Christ, it's not because you're a hard worker. It's not because you're not selfish. It's because you've been captured by the love of Christ. 
You've understood the gospel in a way that stirs your affection and it moves you and it is almost like an instinct to live for him rather than yourself. And when you get that, that, that down in your bones, it changes you. When you get the indicative, the imperative will come naturally. But if you skip the indicative, who you are, if you skip the love of Christ and just get down to what you do, then you're going to get it backwards. And you're probably going to be legalist, right? Because all you're doing is the work. All you're doing is putting in the, 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 the legal requirements that God has called on you. But when we get that, something changes. Our perspectives changes. Look at verse 12. It says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you calls to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So when you see through the gospel lens, you, you begin to, to not see that the outward appearance becomes less meaningful and the heart becomes more meaningful. And, and who is a person really? Like who, who are you? Who, who am I? Are we, the, the, the person we are, is it according to our work? our social status, how many friends we have, how, how well-liked we are? Does it have to do with our looks? Does it have to do with our success, our, our failures? Look, Christians who embrace the gospel should see more than what everyone else sees because everyone sees the outward appearance, right? Everybody can see that, but we should be able to see past that. And in particular, for those who are in Christ, look at verse 16 and 17. It says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So no longer regarding the flesh, the outward appearance, the way that the, the world might see, but we see through people through a gospel lens, a, a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. So Christians are God-ordained new creations. And if you are a Christian, that means you're not who you think you are because your tendency is going to be to think of yourself according to these outward things, right? According to the way you think your friends might see, according to whether you're being, having success or failing in life or whatever it is, you're going to see yourself that way. You're going to see others that way. But, but look, according to the gospel, you are not who you were when you grew up. You are not the person you were in high school. You're not the person you were in college. You're not the person who your work says you are. You're not the person your friends say you are. You are a God-ordained new crea creation. Look, so, so in the future, you guys heard me talk about the, 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 the new heaven and new earth. So it's the consummation of all things. When Christ's redemptive work is complete when he returns, when there's the resurrection of the dead, and we are all in our in the new, new heaven and new earth, in our new resurrected bodies, there's a new creation that's in the future, right? The, the new heaven and new earth. And what this passage is saying is that when you're a Christian, you're a new creation. So the person you will be has been deposited in you now. Last week, we looked at the idea about how we're wasting away in this tent, Right? But there's something inside us. It's the, the gospel, the new creation in us. And so what you are, you are, you are a new creation that is wrapped in a shell that's wasting away, right? You are a person from the future, from the world to come, that's been deposited in a outer shell that is currently wasting away. Look, you, you are less of what you have been, and you are more of what you will be in the new heaven, new earth. 
Does that make sense? So what I'm saying is, is that the person you imagine yourself of, in which a lot of this comes from the way we imagine ourselves as children growing up, high school, college, or just up till now, you are less that person than you are the person you will be in the new heaven, new earth. That's more of who you are. And that's who you become when you, become, when you come to Christ. You, you are a deposit from the world to come, a new creation. And since you belong to the world to come, you are a citizen of that world more than you are of this world. You are more of a citizen of heaven than you are a citizen of this world. And therefore, you're an ambassador for Christ. You are an ambassador from a world to come. Look at verse 20. Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul sees himself as a diplomat of heaven. He's a diplomat of a future world that is to come to the present world that is. And he has a message from the world to come, and it's this. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So as an ambassador of Christ, Paul has a lot to say on behalf of Jesus. And as ambassador of Christ, we have a lot to say on behalf of Jesus. But there's one main thing. There's one main thing. It's the message of reconciliation. As ambassadors of Christ, we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 18 and 19. It says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, since we have been reconciled with Christ, with that being our identity, we are a new creation from a future world, loved by Christ, reconciled to God, we are entrusted with a ministry and with a message. And it's the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Or to put it another way, gospel proclamation, which brings me to my second point, gospel proclamation. So in, in verse 11, we read that Paul is trying to persuade others in light of the fear of the Lord. In verse 18, Paul says that he's given the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he says he's been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And in chapter 6, verse 1, he appeals to them to not receive the grace of God in vain. Then in chapter 6, verse 4 through 10, he writes about all that he has suffered and gone through, getting the message of reconciliation out. Paul's being reconciled to God came with a happy burden of him being a minister of reconciliation. And as ones who have been reconciled to God ourselves, we should have that happy burden as well. And, and here we see that in his ministry of reconciliation, there, there's two parts to this ministry of reconciliation that we at least see in our text today. The first is clarity and the second is a warning. So I want to talk about in his gospel proclamation, his clarity and then his warning. So first, let's consider the clarity. Look at chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in verse 20, he describes his role as an ambassador of Christ. And he says, it's as if God himself is making his appeal through him. And God's appeal that he is making through Paul is this, be reconciled to God. 
Then he gives a really simple and clear presentation of the gospel in verse 21. And look, if I could only share one verse, I might change my mind later, but right now, today, if I could only share one verse about the gospel, I'm picking 1 Corinthians 5.21. To me, I would like 1 Corinthians 5.21 to replace John 3.16. Big fan of John 3.16, always have been. But I think there's something in 1 Corinthians 5.21 that people often miss about the gospel. Let me just read it again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a big theological word for this called double imputation. All right. And here's what I I want y'all. The reason I share these words is sometimes, like I've said before, it's helpful to have a a somewhat complex idea kind of broken down to a a simple term that we can kind of reach back to and, and grab onto. So double imputation. Here's what it means. It means that the sins of believers are imputed or transferred to Jesus. And God's wrath goes off on Jesus at the cross, right? But, but it doesn't stop there. And here's the part that I don't think people get that they might miss with John 3.16. There's a second part to, the, to what's happening in the gospel. There, there's this exchange where our sin goes on to Jesus. But do you know something comes on to us? It, it doesn't just go with us towards Jesus. Something of Jesus comes on to us. And it's this, it's the righteousness of God. So the righteousness of God, as our sin is transferred, imputed to Jesus, the righteousness of God is transferred or imputed to us. And so when we stand before God, we stand with a clear conscience because our sin has been dealt with. It's been imputed and transferred to Jesus. And more than that, his righteousness has been transferred to us. Can you become more righteous than you are right now? No, no. Because it's the righteousness of Jesus, right? And so look, there's a discussion there about active and passive righteousness. I'm just saying, and you're standing before God, you can't be more righteous than you are. In your life, certainly you you can repent from sin and move towards more righteousness. But in God's sight, all your sin has been dealt with and the righteousness of Christ is now validating you before God. And so here's how it works. I'm sure a lot of us carry a little bit of debt, right? Wouldn't it be great if somebody, somebody with money took that debt and put it on themselves, I mean, that'd be killer, right? Just a fresh start. <laughs> then maybe you go back and get dead again, right? That's no good. So, so what if they took that debt and then just take the debt, but what if they gave you $100,000? Pretty sweet, right? Well, that, that's the exchange that the gospel is, that he takes our debt, pays it in full, and then he gives us his righteousness, That's what the gospel is. Our debt of sin is paid and the righteousness we could not gain is credited to us. Double imputation imputation is the good news. It's the gospel. And that's how we're reconciled to God. And y'all, this is what Redeemer Church is in the business of doing. The, The message that we've been entrusted with, that God's church has been entrusted with, is to make this message clear and for it to spread far and wide. We're not trying to help people find their purpose for living We're not trying to help people find their best life. We don't just want people to know their Bibles really well. We don't want people to just have a great sense of community and family within the church. We don't want to just have a great Sunday worship service. Certainly all those things are are great. They're just not primary. And what is primary for Redeemer Church? It's the message we've been entrusted with, that we're ambassadors. The message of reconciliation, it's the gospel. Redeemer Church is in the business of communicating the gospel. If we have a brand, whatever that is, it's that. It's the gospel. 
It's for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And, and we don't want to be producing things outside of that. It's not a community center. I mean, there's, I, hope, I hope there's great things we do for the community, but I hope it's rooted in the gospel first, and whatever we do comes out of that. Because if we're not rooted in the gospel first, we'll do these things to, make, to be good in God's eyes. We'll do these things to have respect in the community or friends or whatever it is. And we must not do that. We have to lay the foundation on the gospel and build out of that. And if we don't, we're going to get weird, right? You've probably done something kind of weird before that you just, you, it's a Christian thing everybody's doing and you didn't know, you just did it anyway, right? And, and you felt weird after it. And a lot of people leave the faith because they're just like, oh, I was just going along with the flow. And they were, and they should leave that faith they were in because they need to come back and get rooted in the gospel and begin to operate out of that. But this is what we must be in the business of doing. Everything comes after the gospel. Finding purpose comes from first being reconciled to God. Knowing your Bible well knows, to, to know your Bible well, you need to know the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, you're going to misinterpret the Bible up, down, left, and right. And we've all seen it happen. And community and friendships will thrive best when rooted in the gospel. Now, Paul, so he makes the gospel clear, right? The 521, that, that our sin is imputed to Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. And after he does that, he does something else. He gives a warning. In chapter 6, verse 1 through 2, and this is good for those of us in Mississippi who have grown up in a largely Christian culture. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he says this, Working together with them, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Is there a risk of growing up in the church? Is there a risk at, at having, quote, always have been a Christian? I'd say it's this. You can become inoculated to the gospel. You heard it so much, it just never hits you. You never really had an argument with it. You weren't going to go be an atheist or agnostic. It would be too, too, too much of a leap to jump onto some religion. That's not really your personality. You just kind of go along with it, right? I mean, there's a sense where, where it's, it's somewhat dangerous to grow up and to hear the gospel over and over and over. Because what can happen? You become immune to it. And you begin to assume that you're just a Christian because you always have been one. And you have no argument against the gospel. You hear it over and over. Maybe you even got baptized. You said the sinner's prayer. But all you really did was go deeper into the illusion that you're reconciled to God. And you never really repented from your sins. And you never really turned to follow Christ. It was just a part of the cultural makeup. And there's a lot of people who would be in that category who received the grace of God in vain. Later in 2 Corinthians, towards the end of chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says this, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? How do you know if you've received the grace of God in vain? How can you know if you really are in the faith? Look, that's, uh, those are huge questions for those of us who have grown up, raised in a Christian culture. So... so how do we know if we've received the, the, the grace of God in vain? There's just some questions. First, do you believe the gospel? 
double imputation, that your only hope of being reconciled to God is that your sins were transferred to Jesus and that his righteousness was transferred to you. That's our only hope. Do you believe that? And then secondly, have you repented of your sins? Or to put it the way Paul put it, do you no longer live for yourself, but for Christ? And look, of course, there's no one who does this perfectly, but is that your intent? Is that your heart? And if you are not reconciled to God, if you have perhaps received the grace of God in vain, then I just want to be clear and say this. This is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Believe the gospel. Turn from your sins to Christ. Be baptized as a sign of your faith, as the scriptures teach us to do. But whatever you do, do not receive the grace of God in vain. The grace of God, the gospel, is the best and last hope for the world. And for those of us who believe, it isn't just the message we proclaim. It's a message that defines who we are. So may God help us to see the world through the lens of the gospel. And may God help us and bless us to make it clear and to spread it far and wide. And may we be a people who have their identities rooted in the gospel and live lives that are marked as messengers of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son to reconcile yourself to those who are far from you. And Lord, we pray now that if there be any of us who have received the grace of God in vain, that you would open our eyes to that, that we would believe the gospel, that we would repent and follow you. Would you give us identities that are rooted in the gospel, not in our performance or production? And would you help us to be faithful, to proclaim your message, and to do all that you call your people to do? And so we ask for your help that we might be faithful towards this end. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.